Welcome to The Waitlist. I'm Alex. I'm a student trainee psychotherapist in the UK. According to Mind, there are 1.6 million people on the waiting list for mental health treatment with the NHS. A further 8 million can't get on the list because they're not deemed unwell enough. My aim for The Waitlist podcast is to explore different ways we can support our own mental health. I'll be interviewing people with a range of perspectives on mental well-being, including psychotherapy. If something piques your interest, I'd encourage you to do your own research. I'll be sharing resources in the show notes. Now let's get started with this week's episode. Jeeva has been practicing mindfulness since 1996. In 2007, after hearing about mindfulness-based stress reduction, she joined the course at Bangor University in mindfulness-based cognitive therapies, completing her master's at Exeter University in 2013. Jeeva teaches at the Mindfulness Project in London and Brighton and has been supervising other teachers since 2014. She also works for Journey Live, which is a US-based service which teaches mindfulness in 30-minute sessions to businesses. More recently, in 2019, Jeeva has also started specialising in mindful self-compassion. Five or so years ago, I met Jeeva when she was teaching an eight-week mindfulness course, which personally helped me immensely in my day-to-day life. Jeeva, welcome to The Waitlist. Thank you, Alex. Nice to see you again. So at The Waitlist, we believe that mental health can feel like a taboo topic to many people and that talking about our own mental health can really kind of chip away at that taboo. So each episode, I like to borrow a question from Alanda Botton, which is, how are you mad? So Jeeva, kick us off. How are you mad? How am I mad? Goodness, I wasn't quite expecting that as a question. How am I mad? <laughs> Maybe by... I know mindfulness things about cultivation and patience and taking time and being non-judgmental, but I don't always manage to apply that to myself. It's very interesting after all these years of practice, 25 years of practice, and I've really done a lot. And there's been a lot of shifts and changes in that time. I am much kinder to myself and got a lot more emotional regulation. And I really don't believe the thoughts that come into my mind most of the time, as in the self-critical ones. But I still don't manage to apply it always. So this is the thing. This is still surprising to me. And um, yeah. Yeah. So a bit of judgment in there, even after 25 years of, of practice. But I don't really believe it quite so much. And often, yeah, if it's pointed out to me, oh, yeah, here I am doing that again. So there is some lightness around it. So the patterns are much less deeply entrenched than they used to be when I just believed them automatically, completely and unconditionally that this was just true. Now. I can see this as just a passing cloud going over and then again. And also looking at why that might be. So maybe I didn't sleep very well. Maybe something difficult is happening, you know. So giving myself a bit of slack and not expecting perfection. Yeah, love that. It probably brings us on nicely to our next question, which is what is mindfulness and what are the different types of mindfulness out there for people that might not know? Yeah, so... This is actually quite a difficult question to answer because mindfulness really is what we call pre-verbal. It's an understanding that comes in our minds before words. And it is also very much an experience rather than something that could be explained. So you can read lots of books about it and you might think, oh, that sounds good. But when you taste it, and that's why I use the word taste, it is like tasting something you've never tasted. If you've never tasted green curry, I can't explain what it's like to you. And then you'll try it. And if you like that kind of thing, you go, wow. And mindfulness is kind of like that. When we learn to calm the mind down and to be really present and really noticing what is happening, just what does my body feel like, looking at the colours of my office around me, 
hearing the sounds, looking at Alex's face on the screen, being really present with that. That's a really special experience. If you're used to being in nothing but thoughts, thinking, 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 worrying, 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 analyzing all the time, to just be present. And that is the essence of mindfulness. Is amazing, actually. Mm -hmm. So that's what it is, really. It's showing up and simply noticing what is here, what is happening around me. And to people around me, that's a sort of extension of mindfulness. This is where it comes in with increased empathy. And also noticing what's happening internally, my own mood states, physical state, this kind of thing. And with this, it's not like a blank screen thing. There is a sort of gentle curiosity. Okay, so what's going on here? What's going on here? Okay, interesting. What's going on here? Mm. And in my experience on your course, Jeeva, a few years ago, I think... I mean, look, I came for a reason. I was kind of struggling with anxiety. But the idea around cultivating a practice of noticing for somebody very new to mindfulness like me felt like it is hard to understand. It is that Thai green curry that you've not tasted before. And certainly at the beginning and still now, I must say I don't have a regular mindfulness practice, which maybe we can talk about later. Mm. But cultivating that was surprisingly eye-opening and actually at some points difficult and some points it was easier. But it is so much bigger than I think sometimes we read about online or we hear about, you know, celebs doing mindfulness or whatever. There's something really, there's an undercurrent to it, I think. The undercurrent? What's the undercurrent? I think it's something... It's less about, I think, say mindfulness, maybe I would think about doing a meditation or spending a few minutes. But my experience when I was doing it more often, um, and I really tried not to say about, not to say doing it better then, because I know that can be a challenge. But um, in my experience, when I was doing it more often, it wasn't necessarily the meditations, like the 10 minutes, or at one point I was up to an hour each day. Mm. It was more about noticing what was happening out there in the world. So that's kind of the undercurrent of more space from things, I think is how I would describe it, just in everyday life. More space, more perspective, less caught up. Yeah, totally. Yeah, and that is quite a shift, isn't it, actually? It doesn't Mm. sound like much, and it's very hard to put across in words. But, you know, I mean, and this is why I use metaphor a lot, you know, it's maybe imagining that you're sitting on a river bank and you're watching the river, you know, maybe watching the boats and whatever coming by, but you're not in there with it, mm-hmm. watching something on the screen, but you know, you've got that perspective. And it's not, it's not being cold and detached, not at all. Actually, you're able to give of your heart and your soul more because you're less caught up in all the stuff that we get caught up in loads. So R.D. Lang, the famous therapist, uh, said the range of what we think and do is limited by what we fail to notice. And because we fail to notice that we fail to notice, there is little we can do to change until we notice how failing to notice shapes our thoughts and deeds. I love that. That's great, isn't it? So what made you want to become a mindfulness teacher? Well, I came to practice, like you said, in 1996. I really got very committed with it in 1997. And it was just so transformative for me. 
you know, where I started. I don't think I could have put a label on it, but I was probably quite anxious, probably quite low, certainly very confused. I look back on that time, so I was early 20s, and I just felt, yeah, it looks like a sort of dark swamp of confusion, really. And I came across mindfulness from a woman who's still my friend, actually. And she told me about it. And I had actually always been interested in meditation, even since I was a teenager, when this was really not around in the 80s. And yeah, it just really inspired me. And I thought, okay, I'll give this a go. And it was so transformative. And she was such a support to me. And yeah, the more I practiced, the more I felt clarity coming. I felt so much better, more emotional regulation, better relationships. I mean, it was a lot of practice and, you know, I had to put in a lot of time to, to get these benefits. But it was so transformative that, yeah, when I heard about MBSR, the Mindfulness-Based Stress Reduction that I, that I now teach, I heard about it actually on a retreat from someone else who was still my friend and colleague. And it was just obvious this was what I was going to do. This was clearly my career. I didn't have a sort of strong calling to do anything, particularly apart from that, apart from environmental work that I didn't feel I had the qualifications for that. Um, yeah, so I heard about the master's program at Bangor and I just thought that's what I'm going to do. And I was literally on the phone with them the next morning saying, I want to sign up to your master's. Wow, that's amazing. Because it helped me so much. And I love a teacher role. I do like teaching. I taught other things in other contexts before. So I like teaching. And yeah, I mean, what better context to be in as far as I'm concerned? Where else could I possibly want to work? Absolutely. And so as a teacher now with your many, many years of experience, what do you find people are coming to a mindfulness course for or even just a one-off practice? Yeah, so there's very definite trends. It's very often, um, like you mentioned, anxiety is a really passive one. Feeling overwhelmed, just not coping with life, the sense of things just pressing down on them. People also come to mindfulness for depression and other problems. I would signpost them to my clinical colleagues. Um, who can help them with it because they've got the understanding to to work with people with that level of distress that I don't really have. So it's very often, yeah, anxiety, overwhelm, sense of not coping, mm. just that life is kind of out of control, they're never present, just sort of everyday, everyday problems really. And this is so common, you know, it's mm. more with all not, I would say. Mm. Maybe I have a very biased perspective, but I do hear it an awful lot, not just in my work context. Well, I think it is, you know, we speak a lot on this podcast about, you know, everybody has mental well-being or mental health. Everyone has it. And there's a scale, you know, based on your experiences or based on your mindset at any moment in time. And I think so common it's normal is absolutely true, right? It, it has to be. Yeah. Um, I've been thinking of people that I know you know, friends and also sort of acquaintances, people I don't know very well. And often, you know, there's, there's pressures from work, from, from raising children, from caring for elderly parents, from illness, from financial uncertainty, mm -hmm. you know, and perhaps an expectation that you've got to be all happy all the time and everything's got to look perfect all the time. And we've somehow got to be these, these perfect individuals, which I think is really damaging, that kind of thing. Mm, it's such a tall order, especially with you know, when there's so much going on. But even if there isn't a particular factor, sometimes we just feel not 100%. So as we think about some of those kind of presenting challenges that people come into your practice for, um, how does mindfulness specifically kind of support that underlying mental health? 
So there's a few ways in which it works. So the first one that I'd mentioned is just the simple joy in being present. And there's a fantastic, I'd really suggest you put a link into this. There's a great little study done. Um, and he's got a TED Talk, 10 minutes on YouTube, and it's called A Wandering Mind is an Unhappy Mind. So he pretty much is telling you the results in the title. Uh, it's a guy called Matt Killingsworth. And he did a study uh, using an app, ironically enough, for, and he was asking people, okay, so what are you doing? How pleasant do you find this activity? And um, how present are you? How happy are you and how present are you and how much do you enjoy this activity? And what he found was with pleasant activities, when we're more present, obviously we enjoy it much more. I mean, that's kind of obvious, right? If you're going out for a meal with a friend, but actually, you know, you're worrying about a work meeting the next day, you're not going to enjoy it that much. That's kind of obvious. The slightly more surprising finding was even with unpleasant things, we're still a little bit happier when we're present. So mm. even doing tasks, so like I don't really enjoy housework. Um, but if I'm present with it, it's still better than me doing it and moaning to myself, why do I have to do this? Because then there's resentment as well, and I'm still mopping the kitchen floor. So that was a surprising thing. And as he says, being a wandering mind is an unhappy mind. There's basically no pluses to a wandering mind. And I want to just clarify here, I don't mean sort of creative daydreaming. That can be quite a creative place. It can be quite an intuitive place. I mean, particularly just a mind that's out of control, that's uh, often it will go to worry places, or if you've got a low mood thing going on, it'll be thinking really dark, depressive thoughts, which will take you further. If anxiety is your current situation, then you'll be worrying and getting more worried. We can just be present, often with very simple things. So the first practice in the mindfulness course, you might remember, is, is very mindfully eating a raisin, a very humble, everyday object. We've probably all got something similar in the house. Just being present with this really everyday thing. And you can, one of the messages from that is you can do this with anything, actually. And there's a real joy to simply showing up and being there in your life with whatever is there. So that's the first thing. And there is a very definite uptick in mood from doing this, a sort of supple joy. It's not ecstatic, but you can't be ecstatic all the time. I don't think it's physiologically even possible. There's a simple pleasure in noticing who's with you, looking at this, looking at that, hearing the sounds around you. So there's that. That is supported by not worrying so much. So when worry thoughts come in or depressive thoughts come in or angry thoughts come in, with mindfulness, you learn to take the choice that you do not actually have to follow this stuff. You have the choice here. It doesn't feel like it to begin with, but when you've come back to the breath more and more times, every time you do it, you realize that actually you don't have to follow this thought. And then you can sift out the ones which are helpful, creative, interesting, productive, fun, whatever, and the ones which are really not. But you do need to get that perspective that you were talking about in order to be able to do that. Yeah. So there's that sort of simple joy in being present. There's not thinking yourself, working yourself up into more states of anxiety, thinking yourself down into more ruminative pits. And um, also with time, and this does, this is a reason why a one-off is very limited use. With mindfulness, by just coming to the breath and the body, somehow the intuitive sense is cultivated. Mm, something physiological, you mean? Yes, and there's a book that I haven't read yet which apparently goes into this called What Happens in Mindfulness. It's just in front of me by John Teasdale. But I've definitely noticed this, that the intuitive sense gets cultivated. And when it comes to emotional issues and problems, we generally try to think our way out of them, which mm. does not work. So thinking about things is a great solution for some problems. 
Very helpful. Fantastic tool. A bit like a hammer is a great tool if what you want to do is bang in a nail. When you want to take it out or you want to do a screw, it's totally the wrong tool. So we're trying to use the wrong tool. By trying to think our way out of emotional problems, we are just trying to bang a screw in with a hammer. And then we're wondering why we make a hell of a mess. <laughs> yeah, that's such a good metaphor. I feel like as well in thinking your way out of problems that, you know, that's perhaps not the appropriate solution. We're adding another layer sometimes, which is like, well, why can't I think my way out of it? Even if we're not consciously saying I'm trying to think my way out of it, but why can't I feel better? Or why can't I do this thing or overcome this thing? Yeah. Um, on the mindset, you reminded me of um, something that my boyfriend, who is also called Alex, strangely, yeah. uh, shares with me sometimes if I'm in a bit of a kind of wrestling with my thoughts type of mood. And he said when he was at, it might have been A-level or uni, he was going into an exam and one of his um, classmates kind of looked at him and just said, just enjoy it. And uh, it kind of flipped his mindset for a moment. I'm not saying it's always as easy as that, but it's like sometimes you think, oh, yeah, I didn't think of that. I can just try and enjoy this for the next two-hour exam um, and see how that goes. And for how we frame things is really important. And again, with that perspective, like you're saying, it, it, it recognise we can we can reframe things. We can reframe all sorts of things. So we can be there, there oh, God, it's really awful. I hate this, but I've got to do it. And then, of course, we're going to hate it. Right? Or we can, like I say, try and enjoy it. Find something positive in there. You know, an exam is a chance to show what you know and what you can do. Yeah, totally. I suppose that brings me to my next question, which is, you know, will mindfulness kind of help people feel better straight away? Unlikely. I mean, okay, I say that. There's, there's very few hard and fast rules in mindfulness. So very often people will do a practice and they may well feel better. They'll feel calmer, a bit more in control. Yes, that's really great. So I won't say never, but it does also take time and cultivation. Like I would say anything worth learning takes time and cultivation. There are no instant fixes in with this kind of thing. But very often we do feel better straight after practice. But if you don't, not to think, oh, it hasn't worked. I can't do this. Generally, this is what people think. Oh, I'm, I can't do this properly. Oh, it won't work for me. You do need to give it time and for the, for the results to come in. There's a lot of changes that happen in the brain from practice. From my perspective, eight weeks, which is the length of the standard course, is incredibly short. And I'm amazed at what people reach in eight weeks. Mm. I have to say I'm not super hot on the neuroscience, but, but things like the prefrontal cortex, which is responsible for perspective taking positive emotions like empathy and kindness and that kind of thing, that gets so the left prefrontal, prefrontal cortex becomes more active and the right, which is responsible for depression, low mood, that kind of stuff becomes less active. So we see this. We see the amygdala, the fight, flight, fear, criticism part of the brain gets actually physically smaller just in eight weeks. Wow. Isn't that incredible? It's amazing. So that was Siren Lazar who did that research. Um, and in long-term meditators, then they also see an increased density and connectivity in this left prefrontal cortex. So there's fewer studies, as you might imagine, on lower on long-term meditators because there's not so many of us around. But that is the kind of thing they find. There are, there are changes in the brain. So in terms of does it act quickly? Yes, it can. But if it doesn't, then it, you know, just keep on plugging away. You know, I mean, when I, I wrote my thesis about what helps people to establish and maintain a practice and the allegory that I used as comparison was exercise. 
And mm. it's quite a good one in lots of ways. You know, so whether I enjoy going to the gym or not, doesn't really matter. I'll still get the benefits. And it is the regularity that really makes a difference. And it doesn't matter if I miss a few days, but it is consistent practice. Yeah. Yeah, you don't expect to be much fitter a week later, do you? You know, you expect to see, you know, improvement over time and it'll sneak up on you slowly and then suddenly you'll notice that you can run up that hill you couldn't run up. You know, and it's quite, it's quite like that with mindfulness practices. You know, you might be plugging away, you think nothing's happening and then some challenge throws itself at you, which maybe happened last year, Christmas or whatever. Mm. And you're just coping so much better. Or maybe your partner says, God, you're really calm with this. Last time you were just having a panic attack and you'd even not noticed. Mm. But suddenly you notice, oh, there's been a real shift here, actually. Yeah. So It's such a good analogy as well, because I feel like I absolutely recognize you need to, you know, in this analogy, kind of go to the gym to build up your fitness and you don't necessarily notice overnight, oh, well, I feel fitter. But gradually over time, you kind of look back and think, wow, I have made a lot of progress. But also what comes to mind for me on that analogy is you can't expect to go to the gym for eight weeks, not do anything for a year and then get straight back to where you were 12 months ago. And that's definitely where I'm at right now. Yeah, I haven't got a regular practice and it's kind of in the back of my mind somewhere that I need to reintroduce it. Yeah. But for some reason, it's falling to the bottom of my list. Yeah. Yeah, and this is so common, Alex. It's quite hard to prioritise. And mm. I often wonder, even I sometimes find it hard to prioritise, even after all these years, all this, you know, amazing benefits of the fact that I teach it. Sometimes I find it hard to prioritise as well. So, you know, I want to say to you and to everyone, please don't give yourself a hard time for that. It can be difficult, uh, which is why I wrote my thesis about it. And very often it is the, the main thing, generally, is the benefits, remembering why we do this stuff. And those benefits are very real, but very intangible as well. So that's one of the reasons it's hard to prioritize. It's easy to prioritize, you know, physical task. You paint a wall and you can see it looks better than it's... Mm, quick fix stuff. Quick fix and much more tangible. Mm. Whereas the benefits of mindfulness are harder to sort of really... Yeah, to, to uh, grasp isn't the right word, but harder to see, but they are very real as well. So yeah, don't give yourself a hard time. But remember, you can always just start again. That's the good thing. Most yeah. people... Stop practicing and then they start again. Honestly, that's really normal. So some people listening might be kind of more familiar with mindfulness than others. Um, and, you know, sometimes maybe less so now with so much across tech and, you know, in the news and stuff with mindfulness. But we might imagine that mindfulness suits a certain type of person. Um, who does it work for and who do you find come, kind of coming through your classes? And are there people that perhaps mindfulness isn't ideal for? Yeah, so I don't think I really want to say who comes because then anyone who's not in those demographics mm. feel, might feel that they shouldn't come and, and there's really no reason why they shouldn't come. So, you know, in my teaching career, I have worked with people who were just over 18 up to a guy in his 80s who was delightfully still open-minded and delighting in what was happening, even in his 80s, which was wonderful to see. Yeah, men and women, no difference at all all ages. You just need to have an open mind and ability to be receptive to seeing things differently. I would say that's that's a really, really important thing. Um, 
so all ages, occupations, yeah, that really doesn't matter. That really, really does not matter at all. You know, I've worked with people who were sort of top flight finance managers and carpenters, and I'm not putting any value judgment on, you know, on that at all. But, you know, people with a very physical skill and people whose work was completely different to that. And, yeah, they both got a lot from it. So you don't need any level of sort of intellect or qualifications or anything like that to do mindfulness. In terms of who it's not going to work for is people suffering from major depression or bipolar disorder. I would not sure that that's going to necessarily help. Or generally, if you're in a really, really very difficult and dark place for whatever reason, so like I said, major depression or bipolar, which I know is an ongoing thing, um, there might be some other mindfulness-based interventions that can help, but you would want to go to someone who has a clinical qualification and experience of working with your particular um, issue. So, you know, what I run is general public courses. I would be saying, please go and work with someone who knows more about this than I do. And if life is just really, really difficult for things like um, reasons like bereavement or divorce, things like that, major illness, generally the mind then is in such a difficult place that to sit down with yourself and learn to practice mindfulness is going to be nigh on impossible. I wouldn't say necessarily impossible. That would take a very honest conversation. I'd probably work in one-to-one, actually not in a group. Hmm. So I have worked one-to-one with some people in very difficult circumstances um, and it did a lot for them. It really did. So, yeah, there's very few hard and fast rules. But if you have a clinical mental health problem, a clinical diagnosis, please work with a mindfulness teacher who also has a clinical qualification in psychology or in psychotherapy because you will meet that experience and knowledge that they have. Yeah, thank you for that. Yeah, and so so broadly, if you're... Yeah, sort of stressed and a bit anxious, but broadly coping. You know, you are able to hold down your job, you're, or even if you're off work with sick, but, you know, you are able to get out of bed and function and put aside the time to do the practice, which we'll talk about in a minute, I'm sure. Um, then it will probably help you, but you have to come, or please come with an open mind, not thinking that you know what it is and prepared to give it the time. Yeah. Nothing comes for nothing with no no investment. Absolutely. And it probably brings us on to our next question, which is, you know, if people are thinking about taking on a course, perhaps an eight-week course with somewhere like Mindfulness Project, what does it involve? What's the time commitment? How does it, how much does it cost? What are the kind of details that I might want to know if I was thinking about exploring that? So the cost, um, I forgot to check actually, I think it's £275 for the eight-week course at the Mindfulness Project. And we have eight weekly meetings of two hours. There are some daytime courses. I, I teach evening courses. And I find eight weeks is actually a really good length. You know, people are usually prepared to give something a go for eight weeks. And that is long enough for people to get some benefit out of it. Um, not to think, tick, I've done that and you never have to do it again. I mean, you don't have to, but, you know, you get a lot of benefit if you do. So eight two-hour sessions week by week and a workbook with that and recordings of the practices to do at home. They are 30 minutes and the recommendation is to do that every day. Realistically, I don't know if many people actually do, but there is very strong research correlation between the amount of time spent doing the practice and the benefits that you get. So I mean, the correlation with exercises is quite good there. 
There's also some shorter practices like 10 minutes mindfulness of breathing, three-minute breathing spaces, also what we call informal practice. So things like doing your washing up mindfully, stroking your cat mindfully, things like that. What we call mindfulness in daily life, which was also immensely helpful. Uh, but I would say probably for most people that will not be enough on its own. And you do need to put aside some time. So, yeah, like I said, there's very strong research evidence that the more time you spend doing the formal practice, the more benefits you will get. Yeah. I remember when I um, did your course, Shiva, as well, one thing that surprised me was um, how you and I'm sure the wider team at Mindfulness Project are very open about the theory and what's going on. And for me, who's someone certainly at that time, that's quite cognitive in the way I like to understand things. And I, I'm definitely in my head a lot more than I, than I could be. Um, it was helpful to have those group sessions and conversations around some of the theory. And really, for me, kind of, it was a bit of a dot to dot of, okay, this is what's going on. And this is how I can form a picture in my mind of why it's helpful. So there's a lot of cognitive science now, which is underpinning mindfulness. And mindfulness has been around for a long time, you know, two and a half thousand years. And in recent, say, 30, 40 years, Western science has started to look at it and to see, okay, this is what's happening. This is what's happening. This is what's happening here. And, and there's more and more coming out all the time, the neuroscience and just the cognitive science to understand the, the mechanisms. I'd love to know which, if you can remember any that really stayed with you. The one that stays with me, I've got a vision of you at a whiteboard, which makes it sound much more formal than it was. I should probably add that we were all sat on the floor as well. Um, But I remember you, it was around a a pattern of thinking. If you see somebody in the street that doesn't acknowledge you, what's going on in your mind? And then kind of reframing well, it could have been that they were on the phone and they had their headphones in and you didn't see, or what are the other options that could have happened? And I think from memory, this was a very long time ago, so feel free to correct me, but from memory, it kind of fed into that um, new way of thinking for me, which is like your thoughts are not necessarily the truth and you don't have to kind of get in the river, as you were saying earlier, and kind of try and grab onto things. You can just watch them watch them pass by. That's the one that stuck with me most. Yeah. yeah. How much we make stuff up. We make a load of assumptions and we don't know. And the great thing in a group is everyone, often there'll be a range of different responses. One person is thinking, oh God, have I upset them? Someone else goes, well, they're really rude. Absolutely. There's such a value in the group. We, we talk a lot on this podcast about the value of community. And I think that was another thing that um, surprised me about the course. Um, clearly one-to-one work it sounds like can really support some people for me personally having that group of other people other quote-unquote normal people that were like me kind of doing jobs similar to what I was doing um, was really interesting and understanding their perspective and you know if they were willing to be open with some of the things they were struggling with it just felt really supportive and you know being able to come in for eight weeks each week to share kind of what you've done well, quote unquote, or perhaps what you haven't done well and both of those are okay, really felt so warm and supportive at that time. Yeah, because I don't know about you, generally we don't have these kind of conversations with people. We're much more guarded. We don't know when it's safe to share this kind of thing. Yeah, absolutely. That safe space where it's all right to 
yeah, to say that you've had a difficult time or, you, you know, that, that non-judging space. And this is, as a teacher, this is a big part of what I do is to create that space for the group to do what they are going to do. Like you say, that, that, that support. And a lot of people say what you've just said, just how supportive it is to hear from other people. Yeah, absolutely. So we've spoken a little bit about, you know, an eight-week course and kind of investing in that. You know, for many people, particularly at the moment, cost can feel like a bit of a barrier to supporting ourselves. What kind of low cost or no cost options are there out there that you could recommend or direct people to? Yeah. So I'll say to begin with that most mindfulness organizations do offer concessionary places. They may not put that on their website, but if you get in touch, most of them will be there. You know, we go into mindfulness because we're passionate about it and love it. We want to share. So, yeah, first of all, always get in touch and and just ask, see what's available. Um, also, so there's a course called Palouse Mindfulness. So I'll put that in the notes, which I, I haven't done it as a participant, but I've heard of it. That's a free eight-week course, uh, which I believe is based on NBSR. And also there's quite a few apps which have free bits. So Headspace does, Calm does. I work for another app called Aura, which also gives little free nuggets away. So there are ways of doing that. And also there are some books and for, you know, 15, 20 quid, you can get a book and work through that book. You don't get the groups thing. That's the mm. thing. You don't get that. But the books are generally very good at explaining. So if you're able to follow through with a book, then you can. Some people get a lot from it. Other, other people, not so much. Um, I wonder if there's something in that, though, in terms of group. Like, is there somebody that you think in your own life might be interested in exploring doing it for a month and having a bit of an accountability buddy working through the same book and sharing how you're going? I don't know. I mean, that is a really great idea to if you can find someone to do it with or even even a friend, you know, if anyone's wanting to make changes in the new year or any time, really. Two people say, right, we're going to do this together, whether it's, you know, a partner or a friend. Mm. It reminds me of the metaphor around going to the gym, right? Like having a buddy can always help, you know, get you down there in the morning or whatatever feels um, the right time. And, and, and in, my, in the groups that I lead at the moment, now that we're all on Zoom and, uh, and also everyone's, most people are on WhatsApp, you know, come about the middle of the course, I say, if you would like to set up a WhatsApp group so you can stay in touch informally, between sessions, then do that. And I don't get involved with that. That is very much, that is just mm. the, and people, Organic. yeah, sometimes that, sometimes people have wanted to do that and other times not, but when they have done it, this proved really supportive. Actually, people said, oh, it's great. And I don't know what goes on in there. I'm not in the group, but just to know that someone else has done their body scan this morning or someone else forgot. And just that group thing, I think is incredibly powerful. We, we do better in groups with almost everything, right? Yeah, absolutely. It kind of brings me on to our next question, which is, um, you know, we said at the top of this episode that mental health can be a bit of a taboo and knowing when to kind of share information with someone or even ask how they're doing can be really challenging. So if there are people listening that perhaps are worried about someone and they want to start a conversation but don't quite know how, how do you approach that with people in your lives? It's very difficult, actually. It's very, you know, I was thinking about this before before I came on. So very sensitively, tentatively, you know, asking gentle, tentative questions. So first of all, making sure that they're in a setting where they're going to feel all right to to open up. You know, don't ask them on the bus stop, you know. Don't ask them when they're clearly busy. Don't ask them when their toddler's crawling around, you know, 
demanding attention around their feet. So finding a good time to ask when there is actually time, maybe it might be away from home, take them out for a coffee and just something very gentle and the tone is as important as the words, but I, you know, are you all right? It seems that things are quite difficult for you at the moment and checking, so being quite tentative. Mm. You know, people often, and you know, I'll hold my hand up to this as well, don't always want to admit when they're feeling vulnerable. It's very scary to admit. So they might just go, I'm, I'm fine. You might be thinking you're not, but they're not ready to speak at this time. And you've got to be so gentle. You know, people will come to help when they're ready and trying to push it will almost definitely have the wrong effect, I would say. And definitely no advice giving, you know, no going in there with big heavy boots saying, well, I know what you should do. You should be doing this Mm. to get an opposite reaction, adverse reaction to that. Yes. So just like, yeah, just being very gentle and tentative and letting them know that you're there. But no pressure. I mean, that's a massive thing. Is, is no pr- And also no judgment. Like you were talking about in the group that you did with me. No judgment. Maybe even without making it all about you. Oh, yeah, I suffer with this too sometimes. Yeah, life can be hard sometimes. Well, I was just going to say, even that invitation can sometimes be enough for now at the moment. And we often, I know I do this with good intent, not, not in my, not as a student psychotherapist, but in my personal life with my friends, I so often go to fixing mode with good intention because I feel like that surely I can help fix this and and that's just so often not helpful at all and it can really shut people down so just the invitation that you're there to listen when they're ready to speak I think can feel like a now yeah just the gen- and and I completely know that wanting to come in with a like you said fixing mode but it's it's so tempting it's so tempting <laughs> pointless pointless exactly All right. So my final question is, based on what you've learned over the years on your own journey with mindfulness, what's the one thing that you wish somebody had told you that you didn't know before and that you'd like to share with others now? Probably that this has been the most single useful thing I've ever learned. And I've had a lot of education. I've learned a lot of things. But if I was going to pinpoint one thing that's been most useful, it's this practice of mindfulness, of showing up, noticing, getting curious, suspending judgment, not analysing, but just waiting for the answers to come and being present. I would say that has been the biggest useful thing. Okay. Well, Jeeva, thank you so much for for joining me today on the wait list. Really appreciate your time. I know we're going to go into a brief five-minute meditation, which will be on a separate episode for anyone that wants to tune in and listen to that at another time. 